This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. Hi folks, Ben here with a quick favor to ask. There are some great advertisers who support the show, and in order for them to continue doing that, I need your help. Please do me a favor and go to podsurvey.com slash kick and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you a little better. Even if you've taken our show's podcast listener survey before, the current one is new and different, so I'd really love for you to take it again. Plus, once you've completed the survey, you can enter to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Again, that's podsurvey, P-O-D-S-U-R-V-E-Y, dot com slash kick. Thanks for your help, and now enjoy the podcast. Hi. I'm Ben Mathis, and welcome to Kick-Ass News. My guest today has always had a unique way of looking at the world. The way he sees it, there's little around him that can't be questioned, quantified, and often beaten. The legendary mathematician Edward O. Thorpe received his Ph.D. from UCLA in 1958 and worked at MIT from 1959 to 1961. He was a professor of mathematics from 1965 to 1977 and a professor of mathematics and finance from 1977 to 1982 at UC Irvine. Along the way, he invented card counting, proving the seemingly impossible that you can beat the dealer at the blackjack table. His remarkable success and mathematically unassailable method caused such an uproar that casinos altered the rules of the game to thwart him and the legions he inspired. After that, Thorpe shifted his sights to what he calls the biggest casino in the world, Wall Street. Devising and then deploying mathematical formulas to beat the market, Thorpe ushered in the era of quantitative finance, and today he's regarded as one of the best hedge fund managers in the world. He's the best-selling author of the 1962 book Beat the Dealer, which was the first book to prove mathematically that blackjack could be beaten by card counting, and in 1967 he wrote Beat the Market, which showed how warrant option markets could be priced and beaten. In his latest book, titled A Man for All Markets, From Las Vegas to Wall Street, How I Beat the Dealer and the Market, the so-called godfather of quants recalls his remarkable career, as well as playing bridge with Warren Buffett, crossing swords with a young Rudy Giuliani, detecting the Bernie Madoff scheme, and along with his MIT colleague, Claude Shannon, inventing the world's first wearable computer. Today he'll talk about all of that and what drives his insatiable curiosity. He'll discuss what first drew the mathematician to the game of blackjack and some of the tricks the casinos employed to try and thwart his methods. He'll talk about some of the interesting characters he encountered in the process and why, when it's all said and done, the casinos probably ought to be thanking him. He'll explain why he sees Wall Street as the biggest casino of all and why he's skeptical of the so-called wisdom of markets. Plus, how he figured out Bernie Madoff was a con man, hedging the 2016 election, and the 84-year-old's personal odds on how many years he may have left and whether there's an afterlife. Coming up with the amazing Edward O. Thorpe in just a moment.
Edward Thorpe is one of the most well-known figures on Wall Street. Throughout his remarkable career, he's worked as a mathematics professor, hedge fund manager, blackjack player, and best-selling author of books like Beat the Dealer and Beat the Market. Along the way, he invented the first wearable computer, played bridge with Warren Buffett, and caught Bernie Madoff red-handed. He writes all about it in his sixth book, a Man for All Markets, From Las Vegas to Wall Street, How I Beat the Dealer and the Market. Ed Thorpe, you've had quite a life and still going. Thanks for sitting down and talking to me. My pleasure. Nice to meet you. You talk a lot about how when you were a kid, you had kind of this insatiable curiosity and this desire to question the rules. Um, where did that curiosity come from? Part of it was my father. He had a pretty rough life and... I was being raised during the Depression, so life was rough for the whole family then. And he, I think, attributed a lot of the problems that people were having then to the establishment and how it had basically brought the world to a low point through mismanagement. So I had a, a question authority bent to a certain extent that came partly from that, but it came probably more from the fact that I was mostly self-taught after an early couple of years with uh, my father teaching me basics like reading, writing, and arithmetic. And then I was kind of on my own. So teaching myself things, I found out that a lot of the conventional wisdom that people offer is either not well thought out or it's in their self-interest. They're trying to accomplish something that benefits them. So it made me evaluate information more carefully, I think, than people typically do. And that led me to come to conclusions about things that were sometimes very different than uh, the conventional wisdom. You followed that into college and then became a mathematics professor at MIT. Around that time, you took an interest in blackjack, of all things, because everyone said that you can't beat the house. And you were the one guy who said, well, have we ever really tested that? Was it that kind of curiosity that led you to want to challenge this idea that you can't beat the house? Pretty much. When I came across blackjack as a game, just almost by accident, I thought about what people knew about it. It didn't seem like they really understood it very well. And I th thought I'd think about it for myself. And when I actually played the game live, I realized that, in fact, the casinos didn't know much about it and the players didn't know much about it. I saw that there had to be a way to beat it by essentially counting cards. I reasoned that out. And now the problem was to actually do the work and for, uh, create a system that was practical, something you could do in real time under casino speed and pressure. And you said that you were teaching during the day at MIT, and then at night you were working with one of these big old IBM mainframe computers that take up a whole room, putting in cards, trying to figure it out, huh? Well, what happened was I started to do this by hand, and they had a computing room with giant electromechanical calculators. They were the size mm -hmm. of... Uh, very large typewriters, and they okay. were electrically powered. So I used those for a while, but I wasn't making enough progress. And then I discovered that IBM had a refrigerator-sized mainframe computer, uh, a 704. It was one of the early fast computers. And I, as a faculty member at MIT, was able to get some time on it. So I got about 10 minutes every three days or so. And in those days, you programmed it by punching holes in cards with a little typewriter-like device. Right. And... I slowly built a computer program, subroutine by subroutine, that solved the blackjack problem. 
And after about nine months, I got my results. I found out that when big cars go out of the deck, it helps the casino. And when small cars go out of the deck, it helps the player. So I devised a card counting system that kept track of whether the deck was relatively rich in big cards or relatively rich in small cards. And the way it worked was you started with a count of zero, and when a big card left the deck through play, you subtracted one. And when a small card left, you added one. So you'd count up and down, and when the count was positive, that meant the player had an edge, and when the count was negative, it meant the casino had an edge. So then the idea was bet big when you have the edge, bet small when they have the edge. So you win the majority of the big bets, they win the majority of the small bets, and you come out ahead. And it worked just fine. So the fewer small cards that are left in the deck, that means more 10s and aces, so more 21s, more 20s. Is that right? Exactly right. You wrote a paper about it, and you presented it at the American Mathematical Society. Now, I'm assuming that the usual attendees for a math conference are pretty wonky, professional, you know, pocket protector types. But what kind of crowd showed up for your presentation? Well, I expected a small crowd, so I brought along 50 copies of my talk. And there were about 300 people, standing room only. And it was a mixture of mathematicians and people that obviously had come from Las Vegas or Florida or uh, parts beyond, Uh, people with pinky rings and uh, (laughs) tropical shirts and sunglasses, so forth. Yeah, and I think you said that there were some casino people who approached you and just blew this off. Well, there was a lot of publicity over this. A fellow named Tom Wolfe, who became a very famous American author, was a reporter at that time, and he wrote a piece which was picked up by AP Wire. And then there was a wide press response and followed by a lot of comments. And the casino said they sent taxi cabs for people like me. (laughs) Meaning guys with systems. Yes, exactly. So they were skeptical of anyone who claimed that they had a system. Exactly right. In those days. Now, interestingly enough, the mathematicians who were skeptical initially caught on very rapidly. Really? Understood how it worked and... uh, I agreed it was right. Really? So they validated it. Yeah. Um, you know, and of course you were at MIT and eventually they had the famous MIT blackjack team. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. About uh, 15 or 20 years after I did this, this team developed and they used basically the counting method that I had written about in my book. In fact, if you see the movie about the blackjack team, you'll see one of the players opening my book inside his textbook. Oh, really? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and it's funny because you would think 20 years later the casinos would have caught on enough that they would have had so many controls in place that it would have been impossible for you to beat the dealer. Well, there's been a war between the good players and the Mm -hmm. casinos that's gone on all this time from the time I announced this in 1961 or shortly thereafter until now. And I was at the Blackjack Ball in Las Vegas two weekends ago, they meet every year there. And it's a collection of most of the top players in the world or people who have started out as top players and become wealthy in the stock market or in horse racing or other ventures using their initial blackjack bankrolls. And a lot of the professional players are still doing quite well. In the book, you talk about how there were groups of players who started to exchange information because the casinos would routinely cheat. And this is back particularly during the 60s when the gaming commission wasn't so great about enforcing any rules that might favor the player. What kind of methods did casinos employ to try and discourage you from playing or to rig the game against you? Well, in the 60s, they uh, cheated. They kicked you out. They would temporarily try to change the rules. And... I always had somebody with me that kept an eye on me 
because I thought maybe things might get a good deal worse than that. And yeah. in the 1970s, which was not, which was not as bad as the 60s, they were worse than uh, the things that happened to me. People were being beaten up and uh, some people were being, killing each other and so forth. Uh, the movie Casino, which mm-hmm. uh, came out some years ago, described a lot of this very graphically. And yeah. in my experience, that movie was fairly accurate. At the very beginning, after you had presented your paper, you were getting letters and calls from all kinds of people, uh, some of them kind of kookier than others. Two guys reached out to you named, I think, Manny and Eddie, was it? Yeah, I called them X and Y and uh, beat the dealer yeah. originally, but uh, Emmanuel Kimmel and uh, Eddie Hand. And they financed your first real-world experiment into counting to see if your method really worked. Who were these guys? What were they like? Well, Manny Kimmel owned among other things, 64 parking lots in New York City. And he told me that it snowed uh, over a few days and he lost a million and a half dollars in parking revenues. <laughs> so he was an associate, Manny Kimmel was in the 30s, <clears throat> of uh, mobster number two, a fellow named uh, Longy Zwillman, <laughs> who was uh, the ruler of New Jersey. And I guess he was into bootlegging and gambling and so forth. And- uh, but I didn't know all this. Yeah, you just thought that these were two guys who had a bankroll and were interested in gambling, and they they flew to, I think it was Reno with you. Right. They wanted to put up $100,000, which is would be close to a million in uh, yeah. today's money because of inflation. And I thought this probably wasn't a good idea in case something I didn't expect uh, were to take place, yeah. and they lost the money. So I talked them down to 10000 which they were unhappy about, but we went out with $10,000, and we played for about... Well, 20 hours of me just warming up and then 20 hours seriously. And we, we a little more than doubled our bankroll. We made $11,000 on, on, in those 20 hours. I, I predicted we'd make 10, so it was a pretty good validation of my theoretical predictions. So I guess that would be about hundred grand today. Right. Because that was the, the early 60s, right? Yes. Yeah, and I think you said that he kept trying to play himself, and he, he couldn't just watch the action from afar and let you do it. No, and he, he kept eating eating into y'all's winnings. Yes. <laughs> he wasn't as disciplined as you, I guess. He was a very excitable, emotional yeah. uh, guy. He was uh, uneducated. I'm not sure if he went beyond the seventh or eighth grade, yeah. but he was a very smart guy in really? the sense of street smarts. Well, what did the casinos think was going on when you first started winning? I'm assuming that a lot of them weren't aware that counting even existed. Did they think you were cheating? Did they think you were just lucky? They had a lot of different takes on it, depending on what casino I was in. Uh, one casino thought that I had marked the cards somehow, huh. so I knew what they were before they came up, <laughs> and which was not true. Another one was Another casino thought that I could memorize every single card that had been played and then with that information do some sort of rapid computations and figure out how to play unusually well. Mm -hmm. Eventually, about a year or so later, you published the book How to Beat the Dealer. And you say that the book led to a boom in blackjack play, probably not unlike the upsurge we've seen in poker over the past decade or two. but only a small percentage of players could count and probably even fewer could count very well. So I wonder if you actually created net gains for the casinos by popularizing blackjack. Do you, do you think that maybe the casinos ought to be thanking you? Well, blackjack uh, surged beyond craps and became the most popular table game in Las Vegas 
and the casinos should have ridden the boom and exploited it. Mm -hmm. But they were so upset about anybody taking any money out that they tried everything they could to frustrate the skilled players. And that drove away a lot of the unskilled players. So eventually, after some years, they spoiled the game enough so that uh, blackjack, after it, it surged for a decade or two in popularity, began then to decline and become of less interest to players. So I think mm -hmm. they basically uh, uh, killed the goose that was <laughs> laying these golden eggs for them. Yeah, yeah, they just couldn't see the big picture there, no. huh? Yeah. And what you said has been said by quite a few observers of the gambling scene, mm -hmm. that really they should have ridden it, taken advantage of it, and uh, made a lot of extra money out of it. Yeah, yeah, and I think you said in the book that they were so paranoid about counting that they were going and you know, having guys who weren't actually counting, who just had a good run, beat up in the back room yeah. or banned from the casino, and they were driving away business. Well, when I did all this, the mob was pretty much in charge of the casinos right. in Las Vegas, and the mob didn't like people getting any money from them. And you know, yeah. they, it was very small scale <clears throat> thinking. Yeah, and you know, even more than that, I'm sure that they probably didn't like the idea of a guy coming in with some kind of electronic device and gaming the games. That that came later. <laughs> well, yeah, let's talk about that. Your next foray into gaming uh, involved roulette. Now, I was always told that roulette had the worst odds in the house. So what made you think that that game had a weak spot as well? Well, people had studied roulette and many other gambling games for some centuries. And what they found out was they could prove mathematically there was no way to vary bets and affect the house edge. So in roulette, the house edge is minus 5.26% in the way it's played in the United States. <clears throat> it's worse on uh, some of the bets, but most of them have that uh, particular negative edge. So no matter whether you bet a lot or a little, whether you change your bets up and down and so on, whether you double after every loss to try to uh, win back everything, uh, none of those things work. So people thought roulette was impervious to being beaten. But back in uh, 1949, 1950, a couple of graduate students from Caltech found a defective roulette wheel one which wasn't properly maintained, and they were able to extract uh, quite a few thousand dollars from it and <laughs> go on a holiday for a year in the Caribbean. <laughs> what made it defective? I'm not sure, but it might have been the little dividers mm -hmm. between the pockets. Okay. If, if those aren't all properly tensioned and all essentially equal in the way that they affect the ball, then you can get uh, favoritism of some mm -hmm. numbers over other numbers. So it might have been I that see. that was uh, the factor. Yeah, and you and your colleague at MIT, Dr. Shannon, invented the first wearable computer of all things long before the iPhone or the iWatch in order to be able to beat roulette in the casinos. Um, yeah, what, what we, was this device? What did it do? What we figured out was that you could, if the machine was, the roulette machine was properly maintained, then it should behave in a fairly predictable way. And we figured out that we could build a small computer out of transistors in those days. And that computer would enable us to predict roughly where the ball was going to fall. Not exactly, but roughly. And roughly was good enough to get an enormous edge of something like 44%. Wow. And so we actually went out to Las Vegas with our wives for a long weekend after we built the computer and did it with uh, small bets just to prove principle. And, and then we decided at that point, it wasn't the kind of life we wanted to lead. We would have mm -hmm. to learn how to do a stage act 
and <laughs> uh, worry about uh, being beaten up and taken into back rooms and that sort of thing. Now, those type of things are completely illegal in casinos, any type of electronic aid. Was that still legal back then? Yeah, they hadn't well, even fathomed that something like that could exist, I suppose. Were the reason that they ultimately that they outlawed uh, devices in Nevada. <laughs> what happened was that at that time, it was not illegal to do this. There was a very clear cheating statute on the book, and it, it specified uh, two things that were ruled out as cheating. One was to tamper with the outcome of the game, and the other was to try to change the amount you'd bet on the game. So uh, we were doing neither of, this th of yeah. those things. We were simply observing and placing our bets. <laughs> so we were using information anybody had, but nobody else was using. And then after we built this wearable computer, news got around, other people built computers like it to mm -hmm. beat roulette, and they also built computers to beat blackjack. Mm -hmm. And these proliferated, and uh, people were taking millions of dollars out all over the world. So in Nevada, in 1985, they finally, in record time, passed a law called the Devices Law, which outlawed, uh, which outlawed using any devices that would assist you in the game. And what did this first wearable computer look like? It was a little larger than a pack of cigarettes. It had 12 transistors and some other little parts in it. And it was worn on the body of one of us, in this case, Claude Shannon, who appeared to be simply casing the wheel and writing down uh, numbers that showed up. But actually hidden on his body was the computer. And there were switches in the toes of his shoes, which <laughs> input information into the computer, how fast the ball was going, how fast the rotor was going. And then the computer would calculate, and it would send me via radio. Uh, I was a radio amateur when I was... Uh, uh, a kid, so I knew about that sort of thing. And then there were things like radio-controlled model airplanes operating then. So it would send me by a radio link the information about where to bet. And I'd be sitting at the betting layout, and we appeared to be entirely unrelated to each other, the two of us. <laughs> now, did Steve Jobs ever send you a thank you note for paving the way for him? <laughs> well, I think that the first wearable computers didn't really uh, tie in to the later version. The later mm -hmm. versions were multi-purpose computers that would do a whole lot of different right. things, like an Apple Watch. <laughs> yeah. And this com this computer was, did one specific thing. It figured out where a roulette ball was going to go. <laughs> but it was a wearable computer because to serve its purpose, it had to be worn on the body yeah. and hidden. We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back with more with Edward O. Thorpe when we come back in just a moment. So it's a new year now, and there's no better time to launch an online business or expand your online presence for your existing business, and GoDaddy.com wants to help. GoDaddy's mission is to radically shift the global economy toward life-fulfilling independent ventures, helping their customers kick ass by giving them the tools, insights, and the people to transform their ideas and personal initiatives into success. GoDaddy is the world's largest technology provider dedicated to small business and the largest domain registrar with over 62 million domain names under management and big savings over other registrars. Their award-winning 24-7 support will help build your online business and give you everything you need to get up and running. Whether you have a new idea or an established business, the key to success online starts with a great domain name, and GoDaddy is trusted by 13 million customers. That's more than any other registrar. 
And right now, my listeners can get a special discount on a GoDaddy domain if you just use my offer code KICK30 at checkout to get 30% off new purchases. That's GoDaddy.com and offer code KICK30 for 30% off. You don't have to spend a fortune on a domain. Just go to GoDaddy.com and type in the offer code KICK30 at checkout for 30% off and launch your online business today. And now, back to the podcast. At a certain point, you decided to focus more on teaching and move on from your gambling career. Um, but you took an interest in investing. What made you think that your knack for gambling and math could translate into success on Wall Street? Well, I didn't initially realize that was the case, but I'd accumulated a little money from book royalties and from winning in blackjack. Mm -hmm. And now I had some money to invest, first time in my life. And I thought uh, I should put it to work instead of just drawing a small amount from a, a savings account. The investments I made weren't very good. So that made me uh -huh. sit down and think about how to do it better. And I taught myself one summer what I could about investing. I spent the whole summer reading uh, books and financial newspapers. And I didn't really accomplish anything except get an education. And then the next summer I started again, and I happened to come across a book on something called Common Stock Purchase Warrants. And those are very much like the options that trade on a huge scale today mm -hmm. in the options markets. I figured out from reading the book that I could develop a mathematical theory for those and that I could use it to ensure fairly safe returns by finding a, a disparity between the price of an option, uh, in this case a warrant, but uh, talking modern terminology and option, and the underlying stock. And if I found that disparity, I could capture it with something called a hedge. So I worked on that with uh, an economist I met at uh, UCI, UC Irvine, mm -hmm. and we wrote a book called Beat the Market, which came out in 1967 and outlined how we did that and how we made steady profits of 20% uh, a year or so. Now, you say in the book that gambling and investing are a lot alike. Uh, I'm sure there are a lot of brokers who bristled at that statement. Yeah. Um, so tell me, what are the similarities in your mind? Well, the first thing is, if you put down a bet in a gambling casino, there's an uncertain payoff of some kind. You might get mm -hmm. more or less back than you bet. And you can associate probabilities with that payoff, sometimes accurately, in the case of blackjack or roulette or craps, sometimes only roughly in the case of, let's say, sports betting. Mm-hmm. And on Wall Street, it's the same thing. You put down some money, you buy a stock or a, a bond or other things, and time passes and it changes in price, goes up or down. If you want to cash it in, you have an uncertain payoff, which may be greater or less than the amount you bet. So there's really no difference. The difference is apparent rather than real. In a casino, the action's fast. You're placing bets every minute or two minutes or five minutes or whatever. In the investment world, usually not. But now with high-speed computers, they're placing them way faster than any human could in a casino. Mm -hmm. They're placing uh, millions of bets a day, some of these computers. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's one thing. There's one big difference, though, which makes Wall Street attractive compared with a casino. That is, in a casino, you've got to overcome the house edge. In Wall Street, the edge is in favor of the investors. And so you basically have to just prevent people from stealing your edge. <laughs> and the way they steal it is they charge you fees for not doing anything, uh, investment advisory fees for doing no work. Uh, they induce you to trade on stories. So you do a lot of trading and uh, you lose money in trading costs. 
or you trade too much and you lose money by paying taxes that you don't need to pay, mm-hmm. and so forth. So, uh, but the underlying thing is that if you just buy a bunch of stocks and sit on them, historically, you would make roughly 10% annualized before mm-hmm. uh, accounting for inflation. Inflation probably takes it down to about 7% annualized. One of the lessons that you learned along the way, you were talking about how it was hard initially to view an investment in terms of the big picture in the market, and you were viewing it more in terms of where you came in. Well, one thing I learned fairly early was the concept of anchoring, which is well known now in the psychological studies of investing. And anchoring is where you get in at a certain price, like you buy, I bought a stock at 40, and it went down to 20. So I decided that I would hang on until it got back to 40. But that was entirely stupid because the price I bought it at means nothing to anybody else <laughs> or the marketplace. And so there's no reason to use getting back to where I bought it at as the place to exit. And so I learned that, that little thing at some expense and never did that again. <laughs> and there were quite a few other lessons I learned along the way that are spelled out, spelled out in the book. <laughs> yeah, and you were really one of the fathers of quantitative investing. Now, when I think of quantitative investing today, I think of some wild guy in front of a bank of computers trading like a madman. You took a much more measured, maybe Warren Buffett-like approach. Uh, explain exactly what you did. I looked for situations where I was almost sure to make a profit and that had very little downside risk. Mm -hmm. And I was always trying to eliminate the downside risk in investing. So I I created uh, so-called derivatives hedges before uh, these things were called derivatives. And the derivatives I used in the early days were things like uh, warrants, convertible preferreds, and convertible bonds. And then I branched out into a much wider range of them. So these hedges individually had a rather small amount of risk. And when they captured the disparity between the two sides of the hedge, then I would cash it out. I created a portfolio of these hedges. And the portfolio was very stable against uh, all kinds of extreme events. For instance, in 1987, the stock market fell 23% in a single day. Our positions were essentially undisturbed by that. Really? Individual positions went in many different directions, but the hedges took out most of the risk, and the fact we were, we were diversified over a lot of positions did away with the rest of the risk. Well, I wonder, in the age of quantitative investing and more and more machines taking over for traders, um, are there still areas where human traders and individual investors have a chance at beating the market? Well, the large-scale professional investors, some of them can do quite well. Some of the big hedge funds mm-hmm. are very good. And they do that by looking at lots of special situations that arise. And these tend to arise outside the big listed securities markets. In new issues, there'll be opportunities sometimes. There'll be opportunities in closed-end funds. And then some companies get significantly, significantly out of whack, <clears throat> and you can uh, sometimes get an edge. And then there are privately held companies which offer opportunities. So venture capitalists have found quite a few mm-hmm. good things. Sure. You take a very skeptical view of the wisdom of financial markets. Why? Well, if you look at expert opinion generally, what you find is that there are sort of two kinds of people. One group has been called uh, hedgehogs, and they're simplistically people who know some big thing and keep pounding away on it. 
like uh, the market's going to blow up sometime in the near future. Mm-hmm. And if you keep saying that, uh, every once in a while it does blow up, and you're right, like a stop clock is right twice a day. <laughs> and then there are people that are called foxes, and those are people who weigh a lot of different possibilities and think about them and don't draw conclusions until they have information to support the level of conclusion they're drawing. So they think in probabilities mm-hmm. and scenarios and will revise their views fairly readily. But they aren't the kind of people that are going to make headlines on news shows because they're more on the one hand and on the other hand type of people. Okay. What they found is that those people are better predictors. They can't predict very well, but they can predict some. Mm-hmm. And the sum is enough to be quite valuable in a number of circumstances. And both academics and uh, the government are quite interested in this very topic because they want to be able to predict things a little better mm-hmm. than uh, just by chance. Um, what period in history do you think today's market most resembles? I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, then, um, I want to ask you about Bernie Madoff. Um, at a certain point, you crossed paths with the infamous swindler Bernie Madoff, and you say that you were on to him. How did you discover his scam? Well, his scam blew up in 2008 just uh, to review for people. Mm-hmm. And at that time, there was something like $65 billion in fake money involved. But I first learned about him back in 1991. And the reason was I was called back by an international consulting firm to review their alternative investment portfolio. Everything seemed reasonable that I looked at except for one investment, and that was with BMIS, Bernard Madoff Investment Securities. When I looked at it, I saw that they were making money regularly every month, whether the market was up or down. Mm -hmm. And with the holdings they had, you could apply logic to those holdings and see that in up markets, they should do, they should be ahead. They should make money, but not quite as much as the market. And in down markets, they should lose money, but not quite as much. Mm-hmm. But they made more than they should in the up markets, and they didn't lose in down markets. And the reason, in fact, they did well in down markets uh, in a given month because they added a magical trade, which was to sell short S and P five hundred stock index futures, and they did a big enough trade so that they came out ahead 1% or 2% for that month. So every month they were making 1% or 2%. It looked phony to me. I asked to go over there. They said they wouldn't let me in the door. Uh, that was Bernie's brother, Peter, who was in charge of information technology there. He's now in jail, by the way. <laughs> and so I then said to my client, let me look more carefully at your account to see what's really going on here. And I asked them for their individual trade confirmations. Those trade confirmations would say how many options were traded on which exchange on what day. Mm-hmm. I took them and I went to old newspapers, which I kept, and I found out, uh, analyzing two months of them, that half of them never traded at all <laughs> where they said they were doing trades. Then I looked at the rest of them and I found that uh, many of the rest of them traded in too small a volume to explain the volume that my client was having reported to it. So then I asked a senior vice president at the now defunct Bear Stearns, where I was doing a fair amount of business, could you check some more of these for me and find out who all the people were who traded on a particular day? And they said, well, we really shouldn't do that. And I said, well, this is important. And I explained why. So they did. And there was nobody that had any apparent connection 
to Bernard Madoff for wow. his firm. So I said to my client, uh, what they're doing is they're printing fake confirms, and Brother Peter is in charge of doing the printing. <laughs> and I asked who the accountant was. There's some Palabernies who lived down the street. He'd been doing his accounting since the, the 60s. So I said, uh, this is obviously fake. You need to get out. Mm-hmm. And they said, oh, we're making 20% a year, though. I said, but it's 20% a year in fake money. Wow. And they said, well, what if you're wrong? I said, well, there's a way you can protect yourself. Just move your money from there into your next best investment, which makes around 16%. Mm-hmm. So you're risking 4% in what I claim is fake money. Yeah. But I said, what if I'm right and you stay in? Mm-hmm. Uh, and this thing blows up while you're still working for this company. So when they heard that, that their jobs were at risk, they were out in two months. Huh. Now, of course, 17 years went by before my prophecy came true. Wow. As they must have pounded the table and said, gee, we've made a real mistake here and so forth for at least a few years. It seems to me it would be very easy for regulators to have done exactly what you did. Um, did you think about reporting them? Well, it wasn't up to me because mm-hmm. I had client confidentiality. <clears throat> they were revealing oh. to me their own trades, confirmations, and business. Mm-hmm. So I was simply consulting for them. Ah. I suggested to them maybe we should make this public, yeah. but they had no interest in doing that. Mm. You give some good investment advice based on your years of experience. Uh, what are some of the key points in your book? The first one is that most of the information that you hear about the stock market and individual firms and investment advice of one sort or another is noise. It's uh, as Nassim Taleb explains in his book, Fooled by Randomness, and explains it very eloquently. So you need to think for yourself and do your own work. If you're not willing to do that, the best thing for you to do is simply buy index funds that have uh, very low fees. Then you're ahead of most of the crowd, it turns out. In addition to thinking for yourself, what you need is... uh, what I call a good bullshit detector. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You need to be able to figure out what is true, what is not true, and what you haven't yet resolved. And you'll face a rain of stories from all sources. Most of them aren't worth listening to. Some of them have people who simply have a reason for spreading these stories, whether it's be to manipulate a stock mm-hmm. or to get your business, or because they just believe it themselves and they're very enthusiastic, but they haven't done the work. You have to filter all this stuff. Most of it uh, you throw away. Uh, The next thing is that you should deal with people that are honest, that you can trust. And that's that's critical in analyzing the hedge fund world, for example. And I explain a number of frauds that I ran across that I avoided and how I avoided them by just thinking about the people and seeing what they were doing. Um, you attribute a lot of your success as an investor to the fact that you did it not just for the money, but for the love of the mathematics behind it. They always say, if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. Have you found that to be true? I think that's a good statement. I, I simply followed my interests and my curiosity. I, f- I found lots of interesting things to do, fun problems to solve, and had a good time and learned a lot and met a lot of great people. When I stopped enjoying something I was doing, then I moved on to something else. So I played blackjack for a while. Once it became a grind, I stopped doing it, and that happened fairly rapidly. In the stock market, I stayed a long time because I had a lot of interesting problems to solve, and I enjoyed them. But in the end, it finally became something I wasn't enjoying anymore, so I basically wound it down. Do you still find yourself approaching life from the perspective of figuring out odds or questioning assumptions, no matter what it is? Well, one thing that's been very handy to me 
is I automatically evaluate things numerically mm -hmm. as well as in other ways when I read an article, talk to people, and so on. When they make statements that can be quantified, then I kind of check them in my head. For instance, I was reading about the number of deaths per passenger mile for automobiles mm -hmm. and for bicycles. And the article said that the deaths were 1.1 deaths per 100 million passenger miles for automobiles, and they were 6.9 deaths per 100 million miles for bicycles. So I said, well, there are 320 million people in the United States. They probably average about 10,000 miles a year, men, women, and children in motor vehicles, some more, some less. And so, and I know there are about 35,000 deaths per uh, year from motor vehicles. And it turns out when you do the computation, you come out with 1.1 deaths per 100 million passenger miles. I didn't expect to be that close, <laughs> but it turned out to be right on. So I said, well, I can believe that number in the article. So that increases my willingness to believe the other number. It doesn't prove it, but <laughs> it, it makes me think maybe uh, they did their homework and they got a good number there. Mm -hmm. So I do that sort of thing with, okay. just automatically. Yeah. Did you place odds on the presidential election? I told people before the election that the chance of Trump winning was bigger than they thought it was really? from the polls. <laughs> now, uh, the, What did you base that on? Well, the, the day of the election... I said that I thought the odds were about 25% that Trump was going to win. And other people thought that it was way less. And my reasoning was that there's an error in the polls. And the standard error, historically, is typically around 4%, going right into the election. Mm -hmm. So they thought uh, Hillary Clinton was going to win the popular vote by a couple of percent. So when you factor in a 4% uh, standard, standard error, you get this pretty big number of 25% for Trump. Mm -hmm. And I said, people just aren't thinking that way. They, th they think that if the polls favor Hillary Clinton, then, she, then she's sure to win. It's just like saying you've got yeah. a coin with a 60% chance of heads and a 40% chance of tails. <laughs> it wouldn't be clear thinking to think it's always going to come out heads. Right. It's only going to come out heads most yeah. of the time. But I made a, s a mistake myself. Yeah. And the mistake I made was I didn't think through the details of how the Electoral College also affects the vote. Right. Oh, yeah. And had yeah. I thought that through, mm -hmm. I would have raised the odds even higher. Really? Yeah. <laughs> well, before we go, you're 84, although I would never be able to tell. I should hope to be that sharp <laughs> at your age. Um, as someone who has spent his entire life hedging and figuring odds, I wonder, at this stage in your life, do you ever find yourself trying to calculate things like how many good years do I have left or figuring odds on whether there's an afterlife or not? Uh, both. Really? Yeah. What have you found out? <laughs> well, as far as good years go, the I think the mortality tables say that I have about a ch one chance in 30 if I'm an average 84-year-old of making it to 100. Okay. So I say to myself, but my odds are better. And the reason is that I've taken good care of myself. Mm -hmm. I'm fit. Clearly. I'm healthy. And... I don't have any known significant medical problems at this point. So this shifts the odds pretty heavily uh, in my favor. Now, uh, I don't know how far I come down from 1 in 30, but a pretty long way. The other thing is that I'm in a favored economic class and that, that <laughs> and a favored educational class. Yeah. And all those things add years. <laughs> and exercise alone gives you another, another several years. Mm -hmm. And not smoking uh, gives you a couple of years. Well, let's see. Uh, if the average person lives to be maybe 
81, the average man, then the smokers may live seven or eight years less. Mm -hmm. And the non-smokers, since there are more of them, live a couple of years longer. So all these things okay. sort of add up in my favor. Okay. So I think- uh, have, have you a pretty come good up with a number? No, uh, <laughs> I haven't. But I think I have a pretty good chance of uh, you know making it to 100. And wow. perhaps beyond. Well, I wouldn't bet against you. How about the afterlife? Well, 50-50? <laughs> no, I, the only thing I found that seems to be a logical shot at it is when you die, get yourself cryonically suspended. <laughs> okay. And then see if they can bring you back later. Okay. And there's a lot of skepticism about this, and uh, reasonably so. The odds are fairly small, but they're not zero. <laughs> okay. And science is advancing very rapidly. True. Things that are more, were uh, commonplace now were, would be miracles if somebody from 100 years ago saw them. Yeah, isn't there a doctor in Italy who's planning to do a, a head reattachment yeah. onto, a, so, onto a different body at yes. some point in the next year, I think he said? Yes. <laughs> and if that catches on, we're going to need a lot more motorcyclists. Yeah. <laughs> well, again, the book is called A Man for All Markets, From Las Vegas to Wall Street, How I Beat the Dealer and the Market. Ed Thorpe, thanks so much for sitting down with me. My pleasure. Very nice to meet you and talk to you. <laughs> thanks again to Ed Thorpe for joining me on the podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, then you can order his new book, A Man for All Markets, From Las Vegas to Wall Street, How I Beat the Dealer and the Market on Amazon. Or you can download the audio version for free through a special trial offer just for our listeners at audibletrial.com slash kickass news and you can keep up with ed on his website edwardothorpe.com be sure to subscribe to kickass news on itunes and leave us a review while you're there don't forget to take our listener survey it only takes five minutes at podsurvey.com kick you can visit kickass news on facebook and follow us on twitter at at kickass news pod and be sure to recommend Kick-Ass News to your friends on your social media. And if you really want to help out, then donate to our GoFundMe campaign at gofundme.com slash kickassnews. Or click on the donate button at kickassnews.com. As always, I welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions at comments at kickassnews.com. For now, though, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass News. Kick-Ass News is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.